everybody, and welcome. Hi, my name is Kira Berman, and I host the Science Cafe for the University of Michigan Museum of Natural History. We do six science cafes a year, and we're very happy to have you join us here today, so thank you. Um, usually, Amy Harris does the introduction of the Science Cafe and tells you about upcoming events but uh, Amy is unable to be here this evening, so. The first is our Great Lakes Days, and that's this weekend uh, on Saturday and Sunday. And there will be speakers uh, and experts and also things for young people to do. Uh, so crafts and experiments and presenters who will tell you about the Great Lakes and the science uh, surrounding the Great Lakes. Uh, so that's this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, uh, at the Museum of Natural History. And if you look on the events card, it's that first, that first card that's right there. Um, and then I also want to let you know um, about the scientist spotlights that are coming up. So this, this is when we have our science communication fellows. These are um, postdocs, graduate student, and faculty who go through our science communication program. And they will each present, and usually many of them uh, present, each at a, at a separate table. And those are coming up um, in February and March and one in April. So February 22nd, March 15th, March 22nd, and April 4th, we have scientist spotlights. They are at various locations. So the first two are not at the museum. One is at the Ypsilanti District Library, uh, and the other is at Forsyth Middle School. Um, so look for those events if you want a chance to meet more scientists. That's a great opportunity. I really encourage it. Um, also, we have upcoming science cafes in February and March um, and April. Uh, so those are February 19th, March 25th, and April 15th. I'm still confirming speakers for those, so I don't have the uh, titles yet, but you will see them shortly on the website. Um, so without further ado, uh, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about our format for those of you who might not have been here before, and then introduce our speakers. Um, so the way that we usually work science cafes is we have our speakers do short presentations at the beginning, um, and uh, then we'll have some conversation time for each of you uh, at your tables, and then at the, the last half hour or so of the cafe, we'll spend as part of a, a large group discussion, which I will moderate. Um, and uh, I just want to say thank you to Connor O'Neill's for always uh, sponsoring us by offering us this space. So thanks to Connor's. Um, and thanks to both of our speakers, uh, who I will introduce now. Um, easier with glasses. Um, I did, you know, when I, 12 years ago when I started this program, I didn't need the glasses, so I'm still getting used to juggling those. Um, so we have two wonderful speakers this evening. Uh, Georgi Chankovsky, did I do that right? Awesome, yes. Um, 
uh, is associate professor and former associate chair of the Department of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology at the University of Michigan. Uh, she did her undergraduate studies at Yale, um, majored in molecular biophysics and biochemistry, where she received a combined master's and bachelor's degree. She received her PhD in biology from MIT in 2001 and came to U of M after a postdoc at Berkeley. She studies how the higher order structure and organization of chromosomes affect gene expression. She's also a dedicated and talented member of the Museum Science Communication Fellows and presents regularly at the museum on weekends, so you can look for her on Saturdays and Sundays at 1 p.m., uh, where she is often one of our presenters. Um, our, our second presenter is Sandeep Kalantri. Um, he is Associate Professor and Associate Chair for Research in the Department of Human Genetics in the U of M Medical School. He did both undergrad, well, he did his undergrad at Cornell and his PhD, did I get those backwards? His PhD at the Cornell Medical School um, and came to the U of M after postdoc at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His interests are in epigenetics, X chromosome inactivation, stem cell biology, and he is the co-founder of the University of Michigan Chromatin Club, so please ask him about that. Um, so without further ado, please welcome our speakers. Hi, everyone. Am I doing this right? It's um, very different to be here. I, I'm on the undergraduate part of the campus, and I usually teach undergraduates who are not nearly as attentive and excited as you are. <laughs> and their only questions are, is it going to be on the exam? So none of this is going to be on the exam. And I truly appreciate that you are not falling asleep and not are checking your phones. But so today, Sandeep and I are going to talk about what we like, what, what, what's our passion, what keeps us, gets us out of bed in the morning and we think about every day. Sandeep and I are longtime colleagues and now friends because we finally met. We've known each other's work before we came to the UFM. And then we realized that we studied this, well, we knew that, we studied the same thing, just uh, approaching the same scientific questions from different angles and using different organisms, as you will see. So I'm going to get started and um, in introducing our topic. So, um, can I have the next slide, please? I'm sure you all know about DNA. You have DNA, right? We all do. My DNA is different than yours. That's why we look different. But you may or may not know exactly how much DNA you have. So, I actually put it on this little handout on your, on your tables. A couple of fun facts that I like to entertain people with, which is, so, our bodies are made of cells. The building blocks of our bodies are called cells, and I actually don't know the numbers. I have to look it up myself. We have 37 trillion of those. So cut your body into 37 trillion parts. One of those is going to be a cell. In that cell, you have all your DNA. Every cell has pretty much the same DNA. And if you took the DNA out of your cell and stretched it out, it would be six feet tall from one cell. Now you have 37 trillion of those. If you lined it all up, it would be enough to circle the solar system twice. All of that is in one human body. 
and it, as you know, determines how tall you are, what color eye you have, whether you are going to develop diabetes or not, and you know, all of that. So I like order. My kids drive me crazy by how messy their rooms are. And I keep telling them that if you want your room to be functioning properly, there has to be an order. And I think, I'm, I, I'm a firm believer that the same principle applies to DNA. All that DNA that gets shoved into our cells, so you can see this like long strings getting into one ball, it's not just a ball of spaghetti. There has to be some order, there has to be some structure, and that has to have a meaning. That's what I always believed, and that's what our research shows that it is indeed the case. Can I have the next slide? Now, I, I also get a little squeamish when um, I have to do an experiment on a live organism, and uh, I don't want to put a human being under the microscope or extract their DNA or cut off their fingers so I can have samples. So I started to work with an organism that's not human because I can grow it very cheaply. I can have a lot of it. And the DNA is the same. It's built up, made up of the same chemicals. The way the DNA is organized is the same. And so we can study the basic principles of this question using this organism. And so that's what you see on this slide. The little circle is, uh, but the big circle, is when you look through the microscope. This is a tiny worm. It's about a millimeter in length. Uh, it's called Cynorhabditis elegans. The little cartoon figure on the left is one of my graduate students who was a much better artistic talent than I am, uh, made that little picture. Um, they don't really have eyes, they are too small. They are made up of only about a thousand cells. So very simple body structure, easy to grow, easy to deal with, very forgiving of me messing up my experiments, they come back happily. But, so does the same principle apply to this worm? Yes, it does. So I told you it has a thousand cells. In each of those cells, and, and this is a millimeter length, so the whole animal is a millimeter. I need a microscope to see it. Cut it into a thousand parts. Each of those thousand parts has two and a half inches of DNA. If you lined up the two and a half inches of DNA, it would be almost the length of a football field. So how do you stuff a length of something of a football field into a millimeter long worm in such a way that it still can do its function? Next slide, please. So, okay, that's my question, but I mean, that's a big question. I actually have to pick like something, like something tangible to study. And a long, long time ago, when I started on my PhD studies, I narrowed in on the question of the X chromosomes. Because the DNA we have is, is in 46 stretches of DNA. They are called chromosomes. And it's true for C. elegans too, except they only have six pairs rather than 23 like we do. But humans and the worm, there are males and females, and uh, there's a difference in the X chromosome number. So half of us about, more or less, in this room have two X chromosomes, and the other half has one. Same is true for worms, except there's a slight difference that the animals with two X chromosomes, they are not females. They are hermaphrodites. They produce both sperm and oocyte, one animal will produce permanocyte, and that one animal can fertilize herself, himself, itself, I don't know what to call it, itself, and produce embryos without the involvement of a male. Or if there is a male, well, it can also choose to accept the services. So anyhow, the question is this. 
differences in X chromosome numbers. Some of us have two, some of us have one. And I mean, we can argue that some of us are healthy, some of us are sick, but I'm going to say that we are all alive, right? Now, if you think of chromosomes, you've probably heard of chromosomal abnormalities, uh, trisomies, trisomy 21 Down syndrome. Who has not, who has heard of transplant? It is caused by having three copies of chromosome 21. So chromosome 21, if you look on that slide, is one of, it is the smallest human chromosome. It's in the bottom row, that, that tiny little speck. Kira is trying to point at it, that's chromosome 21. If you have not two of those, but three of those, you have Down syndrome. That's the only difference, that you have an extra copy of that chromosome. Now, we, chromosome trisomy 21, trisomy 21 is famous because if you do that to any other chromosome, other than the X, any other chromosome, you will not find a human being walking alive because it's not compatible with life. You cannot have an extra copy of a chromosome or one fewer chromosome. It's not compatible with life. You have to have two of every chromosome except the X, right? Because we started with that. Some of us only have one and you are alive. So why is it that you cannot tolerate differences in autosomes, but you can tolerate differences in X chromosomes? So that's where I started to look into what the X chromosomes look like. Are they different between males and females? And that is Sandeep's topic. So he actually studies the, what happens to the X chromosomes in, um, in mammals, mice, usually. You study humans, just mice, mice. But I study this question in the tiny little worm, C. elegans. So I'll tell you about C. elegans. Sandeep can tell you about mice. Next slide, please. Oh, an important line over there that <laughs> just because we have a different number of X chromosomes, so what's the, the job of a chromosome? It's, a, it's a used to read off the information to build the building blocks, the proteins of our bodies. So um, you, you need, if you have, like, think of it as a printer that's putting out these things, right? If you have two printers, you can make twice as many. If you have one printer, you make half as many compared to one. But in this case, whether you have two X chromosomes or one, they, the output is the same. Those chromosomes do the same job. So how can you do the same job with two or with one? That's the question. Now, next slide. So we started to look at this X chromosome, and I tell you three basic ideas of what our research has uncovered about what happens. So what happens in C. elegans is that the, the hermaphrodites, the ones with the two X chromosomes, they kind of dim the X chromosome. They shut it down half. They are both still active, so it's not like a light switch that turns it on or off. It's more like the dimmer that makes it 50%. Like imagine having two lights, but each of them dimmed putting out as much light as one light would otherwise. So if we look at those X chromosomes in hermaphrodites and males, you have on the right, you have the hermaphrodite that has two X chromosomes, and uh, that was the left. I have two right. Uh, on the left, <laughs> that side, <laughs> you have the hermaphrodite with two X chromosomes. This side, you have the male with one. Now the, the amount of DNA in each of those red blobs is the same. So the hermaphrodite has twice as much, the male has half compared to the hermaphrodite, but the volume that the DNA occupies is different. It's smaller in the hermaphrodite, Those are the same amount of DNA gets squished into a smaller space, it gets compacted, it's, it's, uh, it's condensed. 
And so, so one thing that happens to the X chromosome, the one that's turned way down, is that it gets condensed. The DNA is squished into a smaller space. When it's more condensed, it's harder to work with. Next, please. The other is just like in real estate, location, location, location. As it turns out that the, the space where the, uh, in the cell where our chromosomes are, it's called the nucleus. And the nucleus is, is more active. It's, it's doing more of its job in the middle. And toward the periphery, it's kind of sleepy and not doing anything. Like in the suburbs, the chromosomes are sleeping. In the center is where the banks are open. And so the hermaphrodite X chromosomes, the ones that are sleepy and not doing as much, they are on the outside. And the male X chromosome, the one that's a lot more active and it's, it's doing its job, is more centrally located. And last but not least, and Sandeep may touch up on this a little more, so the DNA in our nucleus is not just DNA, it's, it's wrapped around proteins that helps them keep it in order. These proteins are called histones, and these histones can have chemical tags on them that either makes the chromosome more active or less active. These are, Sandeep is going to talk about why we call them epigenetic marks, but let's just call them epigenetic marks. So you can put these little tags on your chromosomes to make them either more active or less active. And I have one specific chemical tag that's, that turns green. You can sort of see it on the, image on, the, on this side, um, where those proteins have a little black circle, and then I, I use the um, uh, antibody, we call it, that binds to that little black circle, and fluoresces green, so it turns green, and so it makes the hermaphrodite X chromosomes turn green because they have that little chemical tag, but the male X chromosome doesn't have it. So, um, so we think that this chemical tag has something to do with the process of shutting down the X chromosome. Next, please. And so these are our conclusions from this, that um, there are the mechanisms that you can use to make a chromosome less active or more active is keep it condensed or less condensed. If you want to um, shut it down, condense it. If you want to keep it open, if you want to use it, keep it open. Uh, you can move it to the periphery if you don't want to use it, or move it to the inside if you want to use it. And you can use these chemical tags to keep them active or inactive. Next. I'm actually only going to talk about this slide if it comes up. So you can ask me about this. I'd rather just want to go to the next slide, which is, I talk about you know all the work we do. Well, I mean, I actually sit in my office and um, answer email messages. <laughs> and the work is done by everybody else. And I want to give a big shout out to Sarah over there with the black headband. She's one of my students, one of the people who produced all this data. The rest of them are on the slide. And you can see us at our microscopes, because that's what we do. Well, I'm kind of faking it. As I said, I sit by the microscope, I mean, by the computer. but. Um, uh, the students are sitting at the microscopes. So thank you for attention. So that was wonderful, Georgi. Thank you. Thank you. Great introduction. I'm going to wait until the slides boot up, and I'm going to change the order of the slides. Sorry, Georgi. 
based on Georgi's excellent presentation. Uh, yeah, this is fine. Yeah, I'm just going to forward and then come back. Okay. Okay. Yes, yes. So, yes, my name is Sandeep Kalantri, and I am an associate professor in the Department of Human Genetics in the, in the University of Michigan Medical School. Um, I hail originally from India, but then uh, did most of my growing up in New York City and uh, left New York City to the hinterlands of Ithaca, uh, which were only hinterlands until I came to Michigan. But um, uh, attending Cornell University in Ithaca prepared me well for being in Ann Arbor, and uh, we love it here. We've been here as a family now for 10 years. Um, we are a group of five of us uh, at home, a little more in the lab, both our families. The family at home consists of three young kids and my wife, who is an environmental scientist. Um, in our group, currently we have, I have to now count, uh, I think six or seven of us. There are two undergraduate students from the University of Michigan that are training in our laboratory. There are two graduate students that have joined the laboratory that are doing their PhDs in our group. And I'm sort of giving a shout out to them. They're, um, one, of the undergrad, uh, one of the graduate students is here. There's another graduate student that has rotated. So graduate students, when they join, PhD students, when they join University of Michigan, they flavor different laboratories, different groups, and then decide, at least in the life sciences, which laborat laboratory to join to do their thesis work. So we have a rotation student in the group as well. I'll give a shout out to Megan, who's the PhD student, and Melissa. They're both sitting there, and I'm quite happy that they're here. I asked them to I've asked some planted questions. So <laughs> if you hear from them, uh, that's the reason. Um, so uh, there is a longtime lab manager in the group that she's been with the group in, since 2009. She's really the, the go-to person in the laboratory. And as uh, Georgi was saying, increasingly, it turns out, the longer we're here, the longer we have more or the more of an imposter syndrome we suffer from because the less and less work we actually do and more and more administrative responsibilities we undertake and it's really the people in the lab that do the work and I can wax poetic about oh this is a great idea you should do that experiment and then I show up the next day it's like where's the result uh, then I'm you know gently need to be reminded that the whole thing takes about a month to do you can't simply conjure up an idea and then the next day there's a result. So at best there's a month's lag. And if uh, uh, at worst it's years. But the idea is that uh, the, we get to play. The students get to play. Uh, professors at the University of Michigan get to play. And we benefit greatly, of course, from taxpayer funding, uh, certainly from the, in the life sciences because most of the work we do is funded through the NIH, the NSF, or other uh, U.S. governmental agencies. So thank you very much. And we're delighted, in fact, when Georgi asked me a couple of weeks ago if I wanted to participate in this event, I immediately signed up because really um, it is our responsibility, frankly, to, to, to convey to the public the importance of the work we do. And so uh, we're both delighted to be able to, to be here. And I'm really, really happy uh, at the turnout. So thank you very much. Appreciate it greatly.
Okay, so what do we work on? We also, like Georgi, we work on the X chromosome, and we work on the X chromosome for the reasons I'll describe in a minute. Um, and it gets to this idea of genes and differences between males and females. So shown on this um, slide up here is an image of a calico cat. So before I go into the calico cat and how it relates, and we, uh, many an undergrad does ask this question, we don't work on cats. So, <laughs> so this is not an experimental animal for us. It's merely a cat that was in the front yard of a neighbor's um, condo at UN, uh, in North Carolina when we were living there. And I would go and stalk this cat because it was a great example of what the process we studied, which I'll describe in a minute. Um, and I have literally still in my iPhoto library 37 different photos of this cat. And at one point, <laughs> ultimately, the owner who's looking at me, stalking the cat, and taking its photo over and over again. And the cat's photo, by the way, wound up on the cover of a scientific journal. And my wife was aghast because she's like, you need to send the owner of the cat uh, you know, some compensation for using that image. And now that image is public domain, and you've used it in your sort of publications, and, and you've benefited. But what about the owner? In any event, the owner looks at me. He's like, he doesn't know me. He doesn't know me from any random person on the street. And uh, basically says, leave my cat alone. So after those 37 photos, I, I uh, ceased and desisted. But I use the image of the calico cat in, in fact, all of my presentations because it is a really vivid example of how genetic differences between, or genetic similarities between the cells of an organism, much less between organisms, between the cells of an individual organism can still yield a very different outcome, okay? So calico cats, as most of you may know, are exclusively or almost exclusively females. You do not see this kind of a patchy coat color pattern in males. The males would either be, say, orange or black or, you know, some variation thereof, but would not consist of these two different kinds of patches. And the reason females consist, and only females, almost exclusively females, uh, consist of this patchy pattern that the calico cats and tortoiseshell cats also, is because females have two X chromosomes and males have a single X chromosome, and, and in mammals at least, a Y chromosome. So XY males and XX females. So as Georgi very clearly and um, simply laid out, this imbalance between the X chromosomes only can occur on the X chromosomes and cannot occur in any other chromosomes. But this imbalance is still an imbalance, right? There are two X chromosomes in females, a single X chromosome in males. And this imbalance historically, evolutionarily, needs to have been resolved so that the males and females are equally represented in population. If you had too much X-linked output, meaning if you literally had two X output in females compared to the one X in males, you'd be dead. Or if in males, for example, you had zero X output or you had less than one X output, you'd also suffer. So there are um, human diseases with disorders of X-linked gene expression, as it were. So X chromosomes, chromosomes are consisting of DNA, 
DNA then makes RNA, RNA makes protein. If you have too much RNA and too much protein, therefore, from X chromosomes, you are not well. Or if you have too little X chromosome output, you are also not well. And this math of, of sort of calibrated, if you will, output from the X chromosomes applies also across the genome. The genome is a network. And if you increase or decrease one part of that network, the whole network suffers. So the genome is plastic. It can tolerate slight variations, but huge variations cause massive problems and lead to diseases as well, known diseases. Okay, so how do the patches on the calico cat arrive? And I should also mention this patchiness that you visualize in the coat of the calico cat not only characterizes, it's not specific to the cat or cats, it actually characterizes all mammals. So most female or all female mammals have two X chromosomes. In all female mammals, there is mosaicism as it's called. Mosaicism in that in any given cell of the female animal, um, only a single X chromosome is active using Georgi's terminology. Active meaning only a single X chromosome outputs RNA and therefore protein. The second X chromosome is silenced and it does not make RNA and does not therefore make protein. And that is why you see the patchiness. In any given uh, patch, in a darker patch for example, the X chromosome that can produce the darker color is the active chromosome. The other chromosome producing the orange color is silenced. And vice versa, okay? In the orange patch, the chromosome that can make the black pigment is silenced. Okay, the whole chromosome, uh, by and large, most of the genes, almost all of the genes are quieted down on a single X chromosome depending on whether you are black or orange. So two other points I'll make to, to sort of, before I move on from the cat. We, again, don't work on the cat, but it is instructive to explain um, the, the power of, of what we're studying. You can see that these patches are quite large and they're isolated. So the isolatedness of the patches reflects that long ago during development, embryonic development, fetal development of the cat, the decision was made to silence one or the other X chromosome. And then once that decision is made, all of the descendant cells maintain memory of that silenced X chromosome. So that same X chromosome or copies of that X chromosome remain silenced in all of the descendant cells. So there's a memory mechanism at play that is independent of the DNA sequence. Females have two X chromosomes. Often the two X chromosomes are identical, yet one X chromosome is silenced. The other X chromosome in the same nucleus, same small space of the nucleoplasm is active. So identical DNA sequence, yet differential output. So this is a DNA sequence independent phenomenon, also like in the worm. So, so once you have silenced one of the two Xs, the cell and its descendants remember, okay, I gotta keep this one off and the other one on, and that is non-DNA sequence based because there are two Xs identical, yet there are two, two that become different. The other thing is that this is a random process. 
because otherwise you would not see this patchiness. Every single cell early in embryonic development decides, okay, I'm gonna choose the father's X to silence. The neighboring cells, I'm gonna do the mother's X. And you see this roughly 50-50 distribution of the number of cells that have silenced the father's X versus the mother's X. That in and of itself is quite striking because how does the cell randomly, I mean, we talk about DNA sequence, we talk about program, we're you know, a product of our DNA sequence, yet the calico cat is saying, and females, all placental, all, all mammalian females, uh, are mosaics where different cells don't respect the DNA sequence, choose one or the X chromosome randomly, not programmed, not in a programmed manner, identical DNA sequence, yet different output. And this is the theme that I'll, I'll uh, expound on, and how could it be that the organism disobeys what Mendel has taught us. Mendel has taught us we're a byproduct of our chromosomes, our chromosomes yield traits, and what our parents are, we should be because we've inherited these DNA sequences from our parents that result in our, us being who we are. Yet what I'm telling you is that the, the female mammal is a product of a DNA sequence independent phenomenon, at least with respect to the X chromosomes. Okay, so if we go back to the beginning, Kira, thank you. Okay, so this issue of DNA sequence independent trait output in a generalized uh, terminology is referred to as epigenetics. So epigenetics literally in Greek terms, epi means on top of. So epigenetics is on top of genetics, okay? So I'm going to make the distinction between genetics and epigenetics because we have DNA sequences, yet in different cells of our body, um, you know, if the genome was all powerful, to back up, if the sequence of our DNA was all powerful, then you could not easily explain how we generate different tissues of our body. Right, how does a liver cell become a liver cell versus a kidney cell being a kidney cell? They both have the same DNA, yet they are different. The differences in X chromosomes in females allow us to understand how uh, different tissues of the body are generated despite the DNA being the same. All of the DNA is the same in our bodies, yet somehow we're able to generate different tissue type and function as a multicellular, multi-tissue uh, organism. So, so it turns out that there are, are many reasons how our, our bodies form, but in a big way it's being appreciated over the last 20, 30 years really, that epigenetics, the same processes that give you the mosaicism in the calico cat and in all females in this room, operate across our genomes all of our chromosomes to regulate genes in a way that doesn't necessarily obey uh, sequence-dependent programming of the organism. Okay. So, sorry, let me go back just to highlight, it's been in quite in the news in the last slide, um, that uh, DNA really isn't your destiny. You can be an identical twin, and many of us know identical twins that have really sort of obvious trait differences. They can look the same, 
but maybe they behave differently, or maybe they have slight differences as well, just phenotypically, meaning just obviously um, in how they look, for example. So uh, identical twins, of course, are identical DNA-containing organisms, yet they are not, they behave differently, for example. They can be different. And these differences in, in some uh, profound manner are due to uh, these, this epigenetic phenomenon that I'll describe to you how it may occur. Okay, so, so I will also, as a caveat, say that even in the scientific literature, um, the term epigenetics is used almost very loosely to describe any and all differences between cells and between organisms. So this is a source of much debate even now as to what really is epigenetic. Are differences between twins, for example, identical twins, due to differences in um, uh, you know, their epigenome, as it were, or due to some other, you know, they experience different experiences over the course of their lifetimes, and due to these experiences, they are different, right? So there are ways to explain differences between organisms, uh, even if their DNA is the same, that doesn't necessarily invoke epigenetics. So this is a, a topic of much debate. So no, in, in no way do I want to leave you with the impression that we've got it all figured out. This is very much a work in progress, and that's uh, in, in large measure why both of us, Georgi and I, are interested in trying to understand uh, how X chromosomes behave, because we can therefore learn and provide insights into what truly is epigenetic and maybe what is not. And um, I'll highlight this article in the, uh, uh, in the New Yorker that came out on, on differences and similarities between identical twins of the author Siddhartha Mukherjee, who uh, in 2000, I think, 11 had written uh, really a Pulitzer Prize winning book on cancer. And subsequently, he wrote a book on the history of the idea of the gene uh, going up all the way to, to the current era, beginning in ancient Egypt. Um, the article, if you get a chance, it's I think a copy of which is on each of our tables, and also if you Google it, it's freely downloadable uh, from the New Yorker. Uh, that article, it turns out, uh, many a scientist, maybe they're closeted uh, New Yorker readers, but many a scientist would um, uh, read the New Yorker. And the blogosphere after that article came out blew up, uh, and a lot of this uh, scientific blogosphere, that is, and uh, a lot of prominent scientists weighed in on whether the claims in this article are in fact um, justified by scientific evidence with a focus on the differences between twins as enunciated in the article being due to epigenetic differences between organisms, although the DNA sequence is the same, or could you explain differences in organisms that are identical in, in, in their DNAs by, by ways other than uh, epigenetics. In any event, there is much work, uh, both at the University of Michigan and across uh, the, the US and the world, on trying to understand what truly are non-DNA sequence-based bases of inheritance of traits, from parents to offspring, and within the individual organism as well. So this is the power of epigenetics, to to sort of bring in this other uh, way by which traits can be influenced apart from our DNA sequence. Yeah? 
Okay, so the, the term epigenetic, if you survey um, the literature, uh, it was in fact enunciated long ago, 500 BC or so by Aristotle. Uh, and the idea until about 100 years ago is that, or about 150 years ago, is that we, um, upon conception, we are already present in the head of the sperm as a homunculus and that this little being then simply grows big and uh, is born. So the idea of preformation. So preformation means that we are already present in a small form upon conception and, uh, and we simply just grow bigger over uh, gestation and, and after birth. Aristotle came up with the idea, maybe that's not correct that there is such a thing as epigenesis in the sense that we are an undifferentiated cell that then simply grows and becomes and gives rise to different tissues of our body. There is no such thing as a homunculus or preformation. That's the origin of the term epigenesis. The way we use it now is slightly different. I'll get into that in a minute. So that simply upon the advent of microscopes, uh, in the 1800s, people could see under the microscope how an organism develops. And I'm showing you images of the chick. So the chick uh, is very amenable to examining under the microscope um, how it looks and then how it develops. And it turns out that, in fact, there is no evidence once you could see development because of technological improvements, the advent of the microscope, there is no homunculus. There is no evidence of, a, of, a, of preformation, of a small being present early on that simply grows big. It was, therefore, the evidence was decidedly on the side of uh, an egg being fertilized by a sperm. The cell, the zygote, is undifferentiated. It can give rise to all of the tissues of the body. One cell, many, many tissues later on uh, downstream. No, uh, no evidence for preformation but just de novo formation of the organism after conception. Okay, so um, here's where epigenetic comes in, right? So I said, again, you have a single cell that generates a whole multicellular organism, and it does so because the DNA of, uh, in different cells is being acted upon differently. And by that, what I mean is that all of the cells have the same DNA, but not all of the cells generate the same RNA, and then the, D, and the protein that comes from the RNA. Different cells of your body behave differently. And they do so uh, because of this um, a phenomenon, in a major way at least, I don't want to say exclusively, in a major way through epigenetic uh, processes that the cell has in it. And so it's been defined, epigenetics has been defined of heritable changes that are explained by processes other than DNA sequence or uh, uh, in a more kind of, um, uh, you know, euphemistic, if you will, is, is, is a way to explain how an organism is uh, and independent of its DNA sequence, okay? So, so yes, um, Georgi got into this idea that you squeeze a ton of DNA into the small space of a nucleus. So how do you do so? You do so by wrapping the DNA over and over around proteins and by wrapping it like a rope um, around a, a, a ball, for example, 
you can squeeze a ton of DNA sequence into the small space of a nucleus. But when you do so, those proteins that the DNA is wrapped around can also influence how the DNA behaves. It's a bi-directional relationship. DNA needs these proteins to squeeze into the nucleus. These proteins then tell the DNA how, they, how the DNA should be or should not be, okay? And the spaghetti that you're seeing in the bowl is the nucleus. The bowl is the nucleus. The spaghetti is squeezing in. The spaghetti is the DNA. And there are proteins, these cylindrical um, proteins that the DNA is being wrapped around, the DNA being the latter. Um, then those proteins have these tails that stick out. And these tails can be modified chemically. And these chemical modifications can tell the DNA now whether you should be on or you should be off. On being you make RNA, off being you don't make RNA. Okay, so going back to, to X inactivation. So what is X chromosome inactivation? Calico cats, again, have two X chromosomes. One X chromosome is silent. We call that chromosome as the inactive X chromosome. Again, inactive meaning it doesn't make RNA, doesn't make protein. Um, so, and again, once you have inactivated an X chromosome, the memory of that inactive state is maintained subsequently in all generations. Females have two X chromosomes. One of the two Xs is silenced. And this distinguishment of two identical X chromosomes where one becomes silenced happens through epigenetic means. It cannot happen through genetic means because both Xs are the same, as I said, okay? And by elucidating, how the calico cat forms this coat color and how all mammals, all female mammals, um, regulate their X chromosomes, we can learn principles of epigenetic gene regulation that have now been applied to explain epigenetic regulation across the genome, meaning regulation of the DNA without the DNA uh, sequence uh, influencing that. Uh, there are diseases associated with defects in the epigenetic machinery, cancers, otherwise. There are diseases associated with the X chromosome that we're seeking to fix, for example, by turning on a gene on the silenced X chromosome that is mutated uh, on the other copy. So we are using knowledge that we can glean from the study of X chromosome to explain epigenetic gene regulation in both health and disease. And the knowledge we gain about X inactivation, we can use that to treat girls with disorders of X chromosomes. Okay. I have taken entirely too long to explain all this. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, we will take a break. There are some um, questions at your tables. And, and just before we go to the break, there's a word or a set of words in one of, the, one of those questions which I want to get a quick definition of, and it is dosage compensation. Oh, I, sorry. I never defined that. <laughs> That's uh, what Sandeep and I both study, whether you have two X chromosomes or one, those two or one make the same, so you compensate for the difference in X chromosome dosage. Dosage means how many copies you have. I have two, some of you have, unfortunate for you, only one. <laughs> but 
that's, that's the dosage difference, two versus one. The compensation process is that whether you have two or one, the cell does something to make sure that, that despite the dosage difference, the output is the same. So my lab studies this in the worm, and Sandeep's lab studies it in mice. All right, we'll see you in about 15 or 20 minutes for a large group discussion. In the meantime, um, please take a look at the questions on your table, and the speakers will be uh, uh, wandering about, and hopefully you'll get a chance to ask them some questions. Thanks. Hello, everybody. I want to try to bring us back together again. I love the conversations that I'm hearing, and I'm excited for you to share some of them. Um, a couple of quick points um, uh, that I, I want to make sure I don't forget to say. Um, and one of them is that we do have a donation box uh, today that helps support this event and helps pay for the hors d'oeuvres and stuff we have every time. Um, and Nora is holding it right there. Um, we recommend a $5 per person donation, but it is up to you. Uh, but please help fill our box. Also, the university um, uh, will get me in trouble if I don't have enough people sign in on the sign-in sheet. You don't have to put your email if you don't want, but if you sign in, then the, I can tell the university how many people I bought hors d'oeuvres for. So I would so appreciate it if before you leave, you could sign in. Nora, can you hold up the sign-in sheet? Yay, there, there it is, right there. Um, um, also, um, there are orange evaluation sheets on your tables, and um, those help me figure out what, to, um, what topics to do in the future. And in particular, this uh, term will be focusing on the Great Lakes for the Great Lakes theme semester. Uh, so if there are topics about the Great Lakes that you'd like to hear about, I am particularly interested in those. Um, so now we're going to have a group conversation, I hope it's a, a group conversation, um, about uh, the topic at hand, which is uh, genetics and epigenetics, DNA. Um, a couple of uh, quick guidelines. I have agreed to moderate, um, so I'll let uh, speakers know when you have the floor and when you don't. Um, hopefully I won't have to do that second part too much. Um, I, I'm going to pass around or walk around or maybe even run around with this cordless mic. Um, please use it, uh, especially to enable those with hearing impairments to hear and also so that we can record your conversation for later podcasts. Um, so please look at me to be recognized if you'd like to speak or have a question or a thought you want to share, even though uh, I don't know much about genetics, or at least a good deal less than these guys. Um, uh, please limit your questions or comments or thoughts to about 30 seconds to a minute. That enables more people to participate, um, and I may interrupt you if you go on forever. Um, <laughs> So, warning given, fair warning. Um, likewise, I'll try to give pre a preference to those who haven't spoken yet to diversify the voices we hear. Um, based on the last couple months, I've been um, looking at who asks questions. I want to make a particular plea this month. Can, ladies, can you please ask questions? I want more questions from women. 
Okay, just a second. I'm going to start with you. Um, and um, uh, there's, I know there's a lot of experience and expertise in the room, so if there's something you've read or uh, studied yourself, please don't be shy about sharing that uh, and making this more of a conversation and a little bit less of a, a Q&A. Um, we like to foster open discussion, honest debate, even uh, when we address topics about which we may disagree. Um, so please be nice to each other or else. And um, if you forget to turn off your cell phone and it rings during this portion of the program, you may be asked to spell deoxyribonucleic acid. <laughs> um, so please silence your phone. Thank you. Um, okay, and so I know who's going to start us out, right? Are you, are you game? Awesome. Uh, I just have a question. Uh, why aren't all female cats calico? Yeah, great question. So great question. So, so it turns out that um, the reason calico cats are calico is because they have ever so slight differences in the same gene on the two X chromosomes. So each chromosome has one copy of the gene, the other one has the other. So calicos, just by chance, have inherited two slightly different copies. One copy gives you the darker color, and the other copy gives you the lighter color. But there are many other cats that inherit two copies of the black, or two copies of the orange. And that is why it's just by chance if you were to combine the two in the same cat, would you see the calico cat coat color? It's a great question, yeah. And in the same, I should point out the same math, if you will, equation applies to all other mammals. It's the chance event that puts together ever so slightly different X chromosomes or the same. Hi. Hey, first I just wanted to say this was probably about the most interesting science cafe I've been to in a very long time, so <laughs> thanks. Um, the question was, you only mentioned, I, at least I only heard one cause for epigenetic effects that sort of proteins that DNAs wrap around. Is that the only one you know of? Are there lots more? What, what causes all these epigenetic effects? Yeah, great, great question. Actually, uh, Laura, who's sitting in the corner there, just came by and uh, highlighted in our discussions the fact that I totally omitted a further discussion of what causes and, and what are these differences. So it turns out that these proteins that the DNA is wrapped around, they're called histones. The histones have these tails that stick out, as I was showing. These histone tails can be modified, chemically modified, any number of different ways. There are at least, you know, a dozen or more modifications. A few of those are really key. A lot of them are maybe less important. But they can be modified in many ways. So there are many modifications that, that are epigenetic and that influence whether the DNA is silenced or not. That's one. 
The DNA itself, it turns out, just to keep things simple, but now that you ask, I'll go into a little more detail. The DNA itself can also be chemically modified in a reversible manner. You know, the DNA sequence is fixed, right? The DNA sequence is what it is, what you inherited from your mom and your dad. But these DNA modifications, known as methylation, can be put on and then be removed. But the methylation mark can influence whether the DNA is read into RNA and then the RNA made into a protein. But the chemical modification of DNA as well as the histone proteins is epigenetic or constitute the, what is known as the epigenome and apart from your genome. Yeah. Can't believe he's not talking about one more thing. Guess <laughs> that's what his laboratory studies called RNAs. So um, essentially, you have a stretch of DNA, and and the structure it's wrapped into, you can call it epigenetics. And so one part of the structure is do you modify the DNA? You talked about it. The other, the proteins that it's wrapped around, are they the same? Are they different? That's a third. But then a third really important component of DNA in the nucleus is, is actually RNA, which is the, the first molecule that DNA is copied into. And some of these RNAs stick with the chromosome. And so the prime, the best example of this RNA that stays with the chromosome is an RNA that's transcribed from the inactive X chromosome. It's called EXIST. And so this, this first, imagine like a paper coming out of the printer and then you paste that paper all over the printer because that's, a, so that's what's happening to the inactive, the chromosome that's not being transcribed. You make this, well, everything else is not being made, but that particular gene is made and then that gene product coats the chromosome. And so um, that's um, how X chromosome inactivation happens. And that's, uh, so, uh, and just, so essentially anything you can stick to DNA can carry epigenetic information. It's a great way to put it, actually. Uh, I'm simplifying matters, but really, uh, whatever touches DNA, whether it's RNA, proteins, histones, and other proteins even, can um, change the way that DNA behaves. And that, that change is heritable. Heritable meaning it can be passed from parent cell to daughter cell, even from one organism to the subsequent generation. And this is a... a, a a controversial, but, but I think uh, there's increasing evidence that parents can transmit more than genetic information to their offspring that can influence how that offspring then uh, turns out. So a question for our first presenter. You talked about the triple X uh, on the, uh, the triple chromosome, uh, chromosome 21, and I'm Wondering then if uh, medically people are thinking about ways to deactivate one of those uh, three so that it would return to normality. So that actually, that study has been done, which in a proof of principle, the same RNA I was talking about that sticks to the X chromosome to shut it down, you can put that RNA on the extra chromosome 21 to shut the extra chromosome 21 down. This was done, I think it was done in tissue culture cells, right? Like cells grown in a dish, not in an actual human. The problem 
with trying to apply this to humans is that you would have to do it at the time when the baby is tiny when we don't even know that this baby has three chromosome 21s. By the time we know it's typically too late, then you can turn back uh, the path on development. But yes, this, this exact idea is being explored currently at the proof of principle stage. And if we ever figure out how to apply it early on in life, that would be awesome. But it would have to be done really early before the problems develop. So that was a that was a great question. So, you know, if you learn how dosage compensation of the X chromosome again, dosage compensation simply because females have two X's and you need to figure out how to equalize two X's into the males be having one X or two to one. So that's the dosage compensation equation. If you figure out and you you understand deeply how dosage compensation of the X chromosome works you can repurpose that information towards treating disorders like uh, Down syndrome where you can silence one of the three chromosome 21s. And that was done genetically, the proof of principle experiment. But potentially you could do it through pharmacological means where you lower the, the, the output of the three chromosome 21s to equal two chromosome 21s either by silencing one of the whole chromosome 21s, the third uh, chromosome 21, or, you know, having each of the three put out one-third as much. Yeah? I, I believe you said that... Um, Sorry. Now I'm forgetting. <laughs> oh, there. Yeah. Right here. <laughs> um, I believe you said that you can deactivate the DNA if you condense it. How do you condense it? Uh, that's a really good question. Active area of research. So a uh, couple of things we know about it, um, but we are really just beginning to scratch the surface. So one of them, positive negative charges, right? Positives attract, uh, the positive negatives attract each other. So if you, DNA itself is uh, negatively charged. And so if you wrap it into positively charged things, you can make it more, um, compact, and by contrast, if you want to make it looser, you can neutralize the positive charges on the, the wrapping proteins, and, and so, so one is this charge, you know, play with the charges. The other is um, there are these um, proteins, like large proteins that can bind to DNA that are marked with a certain chemical tag, and these are like motor proteins. They can like physically move things and they can physically, like, usually it's done by looping, like you take a stretch of DNA and bring it together to make it you know, two stretches closer to each other. So there are those molecular proteins that can, can you know, bring things together. But this is, we're just sort of, you know, beginning to understand how that happens. So it's either charges or other proteins that will physically move things. Yeah, so, one of the things I think that needs to be unpacked is that we're not really talking about total DNA expression. We're talking about the genes, the individual genes that lay on the chain of the DNA that are being expressed or not being expressed. So there's like 20 to 24,000 protein coding GNA, uh, genes, right? Something like that. And we don't know what the junk DNA does. It, it does a bunch of other stuff. But my question was is when we're looking at those histones, 
are they of a fixed size in general, or do the histone size, do they change across the different chromosomes? Um, and then like, what would be like an average number of histones that um, compose the wrapping of the DNA molecule as a whole? Or how many genes might be wrapped on a single histone? Does that make sense? Histones, it's, it's exactly, it's a very regimented process. Histones are exactly the same. Uh, they, there are four kinds of basic histones. You take two of each, so you, now you have eight little proteins, and they're actually fairly small. And so you make this um, group of structure from the eight histones, and you wrap DNA around twice, 160 base pairs of DNA. And that's the basic unit. And then you take the next 100, there's a little gap, then you take the next 160 base pair of DNA, wrap it around, you take the next, wrap it around, it's called the beads on a string, so you look mag, you know, beads on a string structure. And, and that level of structure is uniform. It's the same in humans, it's the same in worms, it's the same in any eukaryotic organism, if you know what eukaryotes. So anything other than bacteria and viruses, it's, that structure is the same. The difference comes in the tags that you put on those proteins. Until you tag them, it's, there is no variation in size or kind or, or anything. So that was a, uh, it was a great question. So, yeah, uh, the reason uh, DNA is attracted to histones, so I think um, Georgi said this, but I'll say it again. DNA is very negatively charged, and the histones are very positively charged. And so there's a natural affinity to, from DNA to the histones. So the histones, the DNA it sort of itself wraps around histones, what are known as an octomer, eight different histone proteins put together. That's the histone octomer, and it, it's about 160 base pairs, as Georgi said, uh, of repeating 160 base pair units across the genome. Yeah. It goes right along with that question. The, the genetic uh, machinery is making the histones, right? Yes. So it's one of these, every chromosome has its own histone factory or whatever. The, the other question I had, uh, the little trivia, and I, I'm a reader of trivia, and, and AARP's newsletter had something that said to the point uh, uh, that uh, we each contain about 3K uh, of bacterial material, which may be more cell-wise than human cells. but uh, the uh, length of our entire DNA is, um, could uh, circle the solar system. How much would it weigh? Um. <laughs> I mean, is it a, is that a P? Or? <laughs> Oh, your microphone is. Sorry. Uh, what I was saying is that to answer, uh, you know, some of what the previous question had asked, and then what you're asking, the nucleus is a soup, in the sense that there are a lot of things floating around, a lot of histone proteins floating around, a lot of DNA floating around. So it isn't that uh, a given histone protein came from that chromosome. Everything is all a mix. It's a jumbo. It's it's a big sort of. Uh, um, you know, uh, chili soup or some sort of a soup. Uh, 
But it, there is a method to the madness in the sense that the DNA is naturally attracted to the histones. Histones, it turns out, are there are many copies in, the, in our genomes of each of the four histone proteins. So there are many genes that make these four histones. And that, we think, probably is due to the requirement that you have no luxury to lose one of the copies or mutate one of the copies. So if you have many copies, you are assured that there will be enough histone proteins for the DNA to be wrapped around. And it doesn't matter which chromosome they're on because they're free-floating. Because DNA makes RNA, RNA makes protein, protein is free-floating. It just, if it's in the nucleus, it's going to bind DNA. And if the DNA is already bound, there's some other DNA that's going to need to be bound. And so the histone will go there. So there's no chromosome-specific histone to answer your question. Oh, great, great question. So can, great question. Can you repeat that part? Yeah, so, so the question is, uh, does the DNA continuously get wound uh, out of the histones and then back into wrapped around histones or not? So it turns out that energetically, it takes a lot of energy to wrap the histones out of the histone, uh, you know, to wrap the DNA, rather, out of the histones to make that DNA amenable to, say, making RNA. You need to displace the histones for that DNA to be make, made into RNA. And because we, the idea behind epigenetics is that because that energy cost is really high, you want to make sure that the genes that you don't need to make RNA from are set aside, that are tightly wrapped, like the inactive X chromosome, and that when they're set aside, then you don't need to spend time and energy unwrapping it. Only the genes that you need to, be, to, to live and to, to, for that cell to function, do you need uh, that DNA to be made into RNA, into proteins, where you need to kick out the histone so you can make the RNA. So epigenetics is a way to compartmentalize the genome so that energetically, only the energy you need to spend on those genes that you need, uh, that's where the energy is spent. Okay, I'm just going to check the time really quick. We have time for about one more question, maybe two. I have somebody ready, um, but I, I'd love it if we could get to as many as we can. Um, in order to make that possible, I'll just say, um, please uh, do fill out the little orange evaluation sheets before you leave, and make sure you think about your servers who have worked very hard with this crowd trying to take care of you. Um, and with that, we have a question over here. Thanks. Um, I'm really interested in the, the sort of unique nature of the organism that you study in the lab, the C. elegans? Yeah? Elegance. 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 Okay. Um, and so it seems like you get this calico cat effect that probably happens in lots of other different types of cells, but we see it in cats, um, because X chromosome gets deactivated, but in the C. elegans that you study, uh, they just get shrunk. So can, are there no calico C. elegans? So there are no calico C. elegans. What uh, a calico, what a, if, if C. elegans was, had these fur coat color things, what it would look like, every cell would be half black and half orange. Rather than either black or orange, they would be half, each cell would be orangish, blackish. Is that an advantage for studying them or not? For studying them? 
Uh, I think so because it makes them more interesting. Uh, uh, hello, yes. Earlier you mentioned uh, something about uh, certain traits uh, that's passed on genetically. Uh, in regarding that, if there are uh, hereditary traits that cause a certain diseases you know, in individuals, uh, at what point can you prevent that within the development stage? And then what are the risks of doing that? I can, it, the, the, the short answer is it varies between the genes because certain genes are required early in development and if they have a problem, you have to fix them then. Other genes function later and so you can fix them later. So it really depends on the gene. But let's see. So that, that's a, actually, a, I, that's a great answer. But uh, it turns out that a lot of genetic disorders the hope is that you don't have to rely on fixing the genes themselves, which is much more difficult to fix the DNA sequence. If you could alter the epigenome, if you will, it, the, how that DNA is read out, for example, and uh, if you can pharmacologically, through, through drugs, turn genes on or off, by changing the epigenome at specific places, like on the X chromosome, for example, that would be great. There are a lot of disorders, it turns out, that we think to be developmental, and they are, that you can still intervene at a later stage to ameliorate the symptoms of that genetic disorders in, say, the young girl. Yeah. Okay. I wish we had time for more, but we are out of time, and I think Connors has <laughs> trivia afterwards for those of you who might be interested. Um, <laughs> um, so I want to make sure we don't overstay our welcome. And I also want to make sure that I say that um, this cafe was part of an NSF research program. Uh, so thank you to NSF as well. Um, but thank you all for coming, and please thank our speakers who did a wonderful job this evening. <laughs>